0: the SS and the Gestapo were not famed for their sense of humor. Welcome to For You, The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, prisoner war escapes, hosted by me, Dave.
1: And me, Tony. And in this episode, we are looking at the story of Flight Sergeant Cyril Bruce Flockhart of 76 Squadron Bomber Command. Now, this is a bit of an interesting one, actually. We've got a bit of information on this because... As we've said before, it's a non-commissioned officer, often we're very short on info. But Mm. actually, I mean, it's quite a fascinating story of his escape. But I also had a bit of confusion when I looked at some things about his shoot down as well. Because he was flying in a Halifax bomber. And that normally has like a crew of seven. And I saw various reports about it being damaged by flak but then I also saw that there was a confirmed kill attributed to a German pilot which was a little bit strange but it does get covered a little bit in the report but I did manage to find some more information so a little bit on Cyril to start I think so he was from Belfast in Northern Ireland and he was given a peacetime profession of commercial traveller so we're guessing salesman out on the road, and he joined the Royal Air Force actually prior to the war. So he joined up in December 1938, and he'd done his operational training up at Kinloss. and he was trained as a pilot. So in this particular instance, there were two pilots on a Halifax, Mm -hmm. the captain, and then a second pilot, as they would put it, and that was Cyril's position in this particular bomber. So you said he's a second pilot, but why would there be two pilots
0: on a bomber?
1: Well... Often you would have the situation whereby these bombers took quite a lot of punishment, should we say, when they're on their trips, and the likelihood of you getting a crew back home again was increased if you had two people capable of flying the aeroplane rather than one. There are many cases, particularly in the Lancaster, which only had one crew member who was capable of flying. Whereby, when they've been injured or incapable of flying, the engineer has attempted it, and about all they've managed really. I mean, in some cases they managed to get back, but in a lot of cases they only get it back as far as the UK, and then they all jump out. So you you often find like you would get a wireless operator who's also qualified as an air gunner as well um, but in this situation we've got two pilots up the front just helps with the management of the airplane normally as part of an operation but you've also got that extra chance of bringing people home so now he does actually cover a little bit of the raid in his report so I'll read a bit of that, but then I'll, I'll drop back into some of the research we've done. He said, I was a member of the crew of a Halifax Mark I aircraft, which took off from Middleton St. George about 21.45 hours on the 4th of August 1941. We reached approximately the target area of Karlsruhe and bombed the larger of the two fires. We were coned badly and shot up by flak. Now, coning is obviously when the searchlights get fixed yeah. onto the aeroplane and then you can fire at it from there. We were coned badly and were shot at by flak. One half of the tail unit's being destroyed. Now, that's quite significant. There were were actually two tail fins on a a Halifax bomber. To lose one still gives you an amount of control, but it's going to be quite difficult. And this is where I got the confusion, because I still couldn't understand why there was a confirmed kill against this particular airplane. (laughs) Sergeant Byrne who was the captain of the first pilot, put the aircraft into a steep dive and gave the order to bail out at about 0200 hours on the 5th of August. I bailed out at 500 or 600 feet and was only in the air for about two seconds now. That's seriously low. Mm. That's very, very low. As he says, two seconds is very little time. He'd have literally deployed his chute. It may or may not have slowed him sufficiently, but the risk of injury is quite high. Mm. Now, it is interesting because looking into it, I wanted to see what had happened to the rest of the crew because you wouldn't be bombing from a very low altitude in the Halifax. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he went into a steep dive and then pulled out at five to 600 feet and then told the crew to get out, one would have thought you would try and get people out as early Uh, as she possibly could so it's an interesting set of scenarios that's happened there now looking into it seven crew members as I said six of those crew became prisoners of war one was killed and the circumstances as to how that person was killed is not obvious so whether he'd been killed by flak or whether he was mortally injured in the aeroplane and couldn't get out therefore failed to get out is not clear But the interesting bit is is that the aeroplane actually ended up coming down a long, long way from where the guys jumped out. And that's where the research came in with the confirmed kill. Because what it appears is is that Sergeant Byrne, who had given the order for everyone to jump out, stayed with the aeroplane.
0: So he was the first pilot. He was the first pilot. So Flockhart's the second, Byrne was the first. Byrne
1: is the first, that's it. And he actually stayed with the aeroplane right the way through to Holland, effectively, when the damaged and crippled aeroplane was caught up with by a Messerschmitt 109 which then shot it down and actually Sergeant Byrne did manage to bail out from that aeroplane being the only one on board having been shot down and also became a prisoner of war Okay. so that's why we've got these conflicting reports across damaged by flak and then also shot down now the aeroplane had actually been part of quite a big raiding force that night that had gone there and they were the only loss which is quite rare for Bomber Command on that particular night but we'll head back to his reports because he does give a little bit more information he says the aircraft went on And I learned later that Sergeant Byrne had flown it alone as far as the Belgian coast where he'd been shot down by a fighter. So that Backs up what we'd, we'd managed to find with everything else. Now, he says, I reached the ground on a new road. He had sprained his knee in touching down. Well, that is not surprising if you're only jumping out from 500 or 600 feet. If,
0: if anything, he got off quite lightly
1: with <laughs> a sprained knee. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it would have been quite a high-speed arrival, shall we say. He says, two searchlights were still looking for him. So he lay still, gathered up his parachutes and took off his harness and hid everything in a ditch. The fires of Mannheim were pretty big, and I decided it would be inadvisable to make in that direction, and it would be better to head for France. I was on the eastern bank of the Rhine, and as I did not feel able to swim the river, I walked north in search of a bridge. I went along the uncompleted road, which was camouflaged with grass matting, and at the junction of the road with the autobahn, I turned along the autobahn. When cars passed me, I got into a ditch at the roadside. Before I reached the bridge I got into a wood. There was bright moonlight and good visibility and after observing the bridge for some time I decided to cross it, skirt the town on the south and lay up for the day in another small wood which I could see. I got about a third of the way across the bridge when a guard came out of a room in the wall of the bridge. He challenged me, I tried to bluff him but without success and he took me into the guard room and I was then marched with an escort of two with rifles at the ready to the military barracks where I was searched in the barracks guard room. I gave him my name, rank, and number, and at about 0, 0400 hours, I was put into a cell. So that's unfortunate. But mm. he, So he's only been two hours, but, you know, again, with a sprained knee, he's not going to be getting very far, yeah. initially.
0: And also not particularly shocking that a major bridge across the Rhine is guarded. Guarded, exactly.
1: He says, After two or three hours, the first of a number of army and Luftwaffe officers came in. All spoke English and were very polite. I got off my bed for the first, sat up for the second, and ignored the remainder. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to know where I had come down, where the aircraft was, what my target had been, and where the rest of the crew were. I did not answer any of these questions, merely repeating my name, rank, and number. About a dozen officers came in between 6.30 and 9 o'clock in the morning, and I got very fed up and treated them with contempt. I was given bread and coffee. airsats coffee, and later was taken to see the commanding officer who spoke no English. He tried to question me through an interpreter, asking me the same type of questions the others had put, and I refused to answer. I was taken back to my cell where I remained for two days. There was no further interrogation during that time. So he's pretty fed up with his captors already.
0: Yes, indeed. And also it's not particularly surprising that they did attempt some interrogation uh, straight off the backs. Of course, we know that it's not uncommon that most of the information that was given away was given away in the immediate aftermath after capture. Yeah. But equally, it doesn't sound like these army and Luftwaffe officers were particularly well trained either and that they were just chanting their hand. So almost inevitably he ended up in Dulag Luft where you find the professional interrogators.
1: That's right, and that wonderful Red Cross form that exactly. often, often pops up, yes.
0: Exactly. So he did end up in Dulag Luft after that two-day stint in the cell where they were received by a Feldwebel who had lived for many years in the United States. that tallies pretty much with what you've said before. You've always said it was a German who had lived in Canada for a while.
1: Of course, forgive any Canadians and Americans out there, to somebody who maybe had not met many Canadians and Americans before could sound fairly similar. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: So he was taken along to a room that was outside the general compound and given a meal. And there he was asked to change into a Polish uniform while his own was being examined. I find this particularly interesting because he states, my collar stud, nail file, fountain pen and ring were all carefully examined. Now this is late August 1941, but it's clear that the Germans are already at least fairly familiar with at least some of MI9's ruses, but in particular the collar stud, fountain pen, and the ring. Yes. Interested me because that's not wholly dissimilar to what we've seen before when we had Helen Fry on around things like the button compass. That's right. So, the morning after he arrived at, at Dulagluft, a German officer came in who spoke excellent English, and Flockhart states that he was very charming at first, producing a new packet of cigarettes, offering him one, and leaving the cigarettes and the matches on the table for him to help himself. And having asked about how comfortable his stay was and how he, how well he was being treated, he then pulled out a traditional formality, shall we say, which was, of course, the completion of the Red Cross form. The Red
1: Cross form. Who
0: could have seen that one coming? Indeed. You have to assume that it at least produced some intelligence at some stage during the war because... They kept we, on using they it. They kept on wow. using it. So it must have produced something. Otherwise, it was just such a completely pointless exercise that they would have given up, you would have thought. So Flockhart took one look at the form, filled out his name, rank, name, number and mother's address and then put his pen through all the other questions at this point the german officer then politely tells him that he's forgotten to fill in some of the replies oh. which is very very nice of him a little bit more subtle than the first interrogation though can at least see some sort of professionalism creeping in mm-hmm So having been reminded that he had to fill in some of the replies, Flockhart replied, he did not think the Red Cross particularly wanted information on his operational record and that he was not at liberty to tell him anything he did not already know, i.e. name, rank number. Upon that reply, the German officer showed Flockhart other completed forms and said that he was being very foolish and not doing what everyone else did. Now, call me suspicious, but I strongly suspect that these were filled out by the Germans. Mm. Now, some of them may have been real, we don't know, but reading between the lines, I think he's bluffing here. Yes. And it was at this point that Flockhart started to get a bit angry and told the German officer to go to hell. In response, he also got angry, tried to bluster and bluff, but they were both as angry as each other and they got nowhere whatsoever. Which is certainly one way of getting out of an interrogation. (laughs) It's just argue.
1: (laughs) Argue until you both give up. Yeah, basically.
0: (laughs) So the German officer collected up his cigarettes matches and marched away. After that, he was put into the main compound at Dula Luft and was there for about a week. So after leaving Dulag he was sent to Stalag 3E, which is located in Dobrilik, Kirchheim. When I first saw Stalag 3E, I assumed it was either a typo or some sort of satellite camp of Stalag Luft 3. However, it's certainly not Stalag Luft 3, because this is August 41 and Stalag Luft 3 didn't exist until the following year. And for the same reason, we have to kind of assume it's not a satellite camp either, because it predates Stalag Luft 3 and its completion of In the first half of 1942. So, on that basis, while it has a pretty similar name, it doesn't appear to have any concrete links that we can find to the more famous Stalag III. Nonetheless, he is in Stalag 3E, which is located in Dobriluk Kirchheim. So, he arrived there sometime late August 41. He doesn't give a specific date, but on the basis that it was round about a week to two weeks after he was shot down, it should be round about late August 41. However, the Red Cross food parcels did not begin arriving there until two months later in October 41. Now two months is quite a long time for a prisoner of war to survive on basic POW rations. Absolutely, yeah. Because we know that the basic rations that were provided to them were in effect slowly starving them. Mm. And so to be without the top-up that the Red Cross parcels provided, which is what actually kept them alive and kicking... Is a pretty brutal existence for for two months. And I think we also need to bear in mind that as a NCO, he would have also been made to work during this time. Of course, yes. So around this time, an escape took place in the camp, which he did not take part in, but about 12 sergeants managed to get out by making a hole in the wall of their barrack. Now, they were all recaptured within four or five days. He didn't take part because he was living in another barrack. But as a reprisal for this escape, around about 50 or 60 guards were sent into the camp. All of the prisoners' boots were taken away and put into sacks, and they were then issued with wooden-soled sandals. They were then made to march around a field at the bottom of the compound with a guard located at every 20 paces. An officer then stood in the centre holding his revolver and screaming threats in German, the suggestion of which was that they had to march fast enough. They're just going round and round in circles in what are presumably pretty uncomfortable shoes that they haven't worn in. And also, sandals themselves are just not made for marching. Now, Flockhart states that he was both partly unable and part unwilling to march and certainly not march quickly, so he was quote-unquote aided by one of the guards who'd been ordered to make him march faster. Now, this aid came in the form of a hand on each shoulder and kicks in the back of his knees to make him go forward and he was also being trod on his heels and feet. Now, he did try to march on bare feet thinking that would help him go faster, but he was compelled by the officer to wear the wooden sandals. The marching round the compound continued for two and three quarter hours with threats made with rifle butts as well. And at least a dozen of the prisoners of war fainted and forced to get up and continue on. And where they could not continue walking, two of their comrades were made to assist them as well. So this is pretty harsh reprisals for A, an escape in general, but in particular an escape in which none of them had taken
1: part. Absolutely, yeah. I guess the means being to deter any other thoughts from that.
0: Well, indeed, but as we've seen elsewhere, that far from being a a deterrent, harsh treatment often acted as a spur to encourage people to escape. Mm. That's not to say being treated well, discouraged escape. It's just often the poor treatment was so poor it encouraged at least thoughts of escape by the prisoners of war. Now, the reprisals were not restricted to the prisoners of war who hadn't escaped because upon recapture, the 12 escapers who had escaped and been recaptured were then put in an underground cellar with two others that had also tried to escape by hiding in the latrine put in there for five days. Now, there was no light in the cellar and there were as many as five or six of them in the cellar at the time. They only received a hot meal every fourth day and were fed on bread and water. Now, that's also very harsh treatment for an escape prisoner of war who the general punishment was usually a couple of weeks in solitary but not to be left in an unlit cellar underground even with others there. This is still pretty harsh reprisals and as a consequence complaints were made to the protecting powers and later offenders were instead sent to the local police station cells. It's technically not within the rules either but it does sound slightly less harsh than the reprisals that we're seeing here. So coupled with the lack of Red Cross parcels and the reprisals that they're experiencing, it seems like this was a pretty harsh environment in which to find yourself a prisoner of war. And unsurprisingly, as we just said, By January 1942, so only a couple of months after he arrived, he was already getting involved in a tunnel scheme with practically everyone in the camp involved as well. Now there were several searches during its construction, including the search which coincided with the visit of a general. Now this general actually stood on the brick covering of one of the ventilation holes, and the general ultimately said that the camp was not good enough for British prisoners of war and that they were to be transferred. This is actually quite significant because, as a result of this visit and the general's declaration, they were. to be moved out of the camp but not just moved out of the camp but moved out of the camp before the tunnel being completed ah okay Stating that while we did redouble our efforts to finish the tunnel, we ended up leaving the camp when there was still about 20 metres to go. However, Flockhart also states that he learned later that on the night before the departure of the second party to leave the camp, so Flockhart was in the first party, mm-hmm. on the night before the departure of the second party, they broke the tunnel and 52 men got out.
1: That's astonishing. Yeah. That's a big number. Very, Very impressive. At that part of the wall. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Now, it doesn't state how many actually got home if any or if anywhere we capture it It doesn't give any information like that but it's still very impressive to get 52 men out so having departed stalag 3e in may 1942 he found himself in stalag luft 3 in zagan ah so even if it wasn't a satellite camp he still found himself in stalag luft 3
1: regardless i think most people we found either were there for a very short period of time or at least transited through there yes it's it was a very big camp specifically for the purpose of looking after RAF airmen. Yeah. and allied M and actually it was probably more, more accurate.
0: Yes, and the first thing he commends about the camp is that there was an escape committee that was organised, but escape, in his opinion, was difficult because of the activity of the Abwehr officers. So these were, of course, the security guards, yeah. ferrets, etc. He also makes particular mention to the seismographs that they had for detecting tunnels. So in Flockhart's case, he was actually in Stalagliff 3 for a reasonable length of time. He arrived in May 1942, and by December 42, he was to make an attempt by a blitz tunnel which is also otherwise known as a mole tunnel. Ah, the The, moles. The moles, yes, indeed. Now, we have kind of covered this in a previous episode. Now, if I remember correctly, it wasn't the escape from which they were ultimately successful in which they attempted the mole. And that's the case here, but it's still worth having a quick look at what a mole tunnel was and how they went about it. So, in essence, in the early part of the winter 1942, the Germans were making large holes in the space between the warning wire, or also known as the trip wire, and the main perimeter wire. filling in holes with rubbish and then spreading the yellow sand on top. Mm -hmm. So while they were doing it, Flockhart was chatting to one of his fellow prisoners, a Sergeant Chandler, about the possibility of getting into one of these holes and building a blitz tunnel under the main wire. Now the concept of this is you essentially dig and use the sand that's been removed and push it behind you, similar to what a mole does. Yeah. The idea being that you just, burrow through you just burrow through a relatively short space and if you're starting in a hole you've got a little bit of space in which to to put the backfill yeah so at this time they were allowed to walk around the camp until about nine o'clock at night And the scheme was to crawl between the two barracks to a hole about 100 metres away carrying a spade head which he had previously stolen. And this is precisely what Chandler and Flockhart did on the night of the 18th of December. I wanted to pick up on this because I can't imagine it was particularly warm in Poland in the middle of December
1: 1942. No, not at all.
0: Now, admittedly, a mole tunnel or a blitz tunnel would be strenuous work, so you'd warm up pretty quickly, but it's not a great time of the year in which to be escaping. Well, well,
1: the ground would be pretty cold as well that
0: too and he he actually states that it took them two hours to crawl over the hundred meters going inch by inch and then once they got to the hole which was located close to the warning wire between two machine gun posts on which searchlights were mounted once they got there they started working but the hole was only about four feet deep so they're not that far down either i mean with searchlights and guards and even dogs Dogs. in the vicinity Mm. you're not well hidden at this stage no So they were to make a start on this around about 11 o'clock at night and the start of the hole was made large enough for both of them to go in and then the plan was for Flockhart to go ahead and pass the earth back to Chandler who would then block the entrance. They had dug about two and a half meters and they were coming out with the last lot of soil before the ceiling of the entrance when Chandler signaled for silence and Flockhart states, there was a dog on the edge of the hole looking down at us. The dog went away without making a sound. We lay quiet Two minutes later, the dog returned to the opposite side of the hole. We heard footsteps and the terrific shouting began. A Hundmeister, one of the men in charge of the dogs, appeared and the searchlight came onto the spot. So we know now that they've been... Detected. detected. Yeah. yeah. At first I refused to come out of the hole, insisting that the Hundmeister stand beside me as I came out. When we came out, we were marched with hands up down to the gate, the searchlights following us. When we were on the journey to the gate, there were one or two blind spots and on the way we managed to get rid of our maps and compasses. We were then interrogated as to where we were going. I decided to make a joke of the whole business, including the discovery of the 100 Reichmarks note sewn into my jacket. We got 14 days in the cells in the camp. Now, he does state that they intended to jump a coal train for France in the morning, having heard of two Frenchmen from a neighbouring camp who got on a similar train bound for Lyon. Okay. So that was the plan, had they succeeded in getting out. However, of course, the dogs put pay to their plans. Yeah.
1: Which was the purpose of the dog.
0: Exactly. So if anything, I was quite surprised it went away the first time in silence. So yeah. whether that was because they didn't detect them the first time or whether they'd been very well trained not to and give some sort of nuzzle to their huntmeister and <laughs> bring them back to the hole two minutes later, I don't know. It's unclear. Mm. But nonetheless that one way or another they were recaptured. And again, he was to, having served his 14 days in the cells in the camp, he was to remain in style with 3 for a little longer. And nearly six months later, in May 1943, a much better time of the year to attempt an escape. Mm-hmm. He actually succeeded in getting out of the camp for the first time. Now, the plan here was for him to join a party of prisoners of war going to the camp dentist. Sergeant Hale, who was also in the party, had made a key for the dentist's waiting room. And so Sergeant Hale opened the door for Flockhart and locked it behind him. He then went out into the corridor dressed as a German. Now, his disguise was made of well-worn RAF trousers, dyed to look like German working trousers. A white working jacket and an RAF cap made to look like a German cap with badges embroidered by a pole. He also carried a towel and a piece of German soap and walked to the showers in the Vorlager. So he's now into the German part of Stalag Three, the Vorlager which is where all the germans are based and is passably dressed as a german workman
1: and we've seen that this has been a good move before i mean kolditz is a prime example of that Mm. that, you know most germans are not expecting a prisoner of war to be in their part of the camp and therefore maybe less likely to look closely Mm -hmm. should we say yes
0: indeed it's the is the Neve principle that if a prisoner of war is somewhere they're not expected to be they might actually be hidden in plain sight
1: yes of course, you run the risk of in smaller camps of somebody not recognizing your face, whereas a large camp such as Static of 3, a lot better chance.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So having walked into the barracks he wandered around for a little and then got a rake and started to rake the pathway because of course he's passing himself off as a workman so if he's just wandering around that's going to attract attention but if he's raking up leaves he's applying the principle of being hidden in plain sight. So he then basically spends the next couple of hours doing various little odd jobs around the Vorlager, including getting a plank and carrying it on his shoulder to the stables. Sorry, he spends the next couple of hours?
1: Yes. There. So he's <laughs> good. Yep. Ballsy move not to, not to make a run for it.
0: Indeed, yeah, absolutely and in fact when everyone else drifted away for lunch, he went up a ladder to the hayloft and lay down in the back of the loft until dusk. So that's ultimately how he managed to get himself hidden away in order to make his eventual break. So having received a signal that all was well, Flockhart then waited until after dark to come out of the hayloft. Now he does mention that he was being covered on parade by Sergeant Lyles and the Sergeant Wilkie, both of whom were pretty similar to him in appearance. So having waited till dark and come out of the hayloft, he made his way through the German camp and found a bus outside the sergeant's mess. He originally thought of hiding under the back seat of the bus, but considered this impractical. So he spent the next couple of hours in the lavatories of the German camp. So he's still inside the German Vorlager here. Yeah. At midnight, he got himself dressed and made his way around the back of the lavatory, through some trees close to the dog kennels, over a single-stranded barbed wire, fence, and into a wood on the south side of the camp. Now, the plan was to head to Warsaw, where he had an address of a contact, and so he started making his way on foot from Sagan. He made his way on foot from Zagan towards Sprotto and then he planned to get a train, intending to make for Lyssa. Now, on the train he travelled as a Polish workman on a false ausweis, which had been forged in the camp. So, having made his way to the border, he crossed the frontier and headed towards a village a few kilometres inside. Having reached that village, a party of boys in the street asked me where I was going. He states that it was around about 10 o'clock at night. He said he was going to listen. They asked for my vice, and I showed them the appropriate one which had, instead of a photograph, a pencil sketch done in the camp. Now that sounds quite risky to me but he does state that the sketch was good enough to pass in poor light. Nonetheless, one of the boys was dissatisfied but I was allowed to go. As soon as I got clear of the village, I started to run along the road. A few minutes later, two bicycles came along behind me. I hid in a field of barley beside the road at... The cyclists were two of the boys, so I decided to cut across country. So having made this decision to go by foot across country instead of by the roads, he therefore bypassed Lyssa walking by night and hiding by day. perfectly common approach to going cross country. A couple of mornings later, he came across a barefooted boy leading a horse. He spoke to him in German, which he did not understand, so I asked him for shelter in Polish, which I learned a few words of while in the camp, and I told him I was British. He took me back to the farm where a middle-aged man was working. This man spoke a little German, so he said he was glad to help. He was then taken into the farmhouse where he was given a meal. However, not long after that, a Polish woman who was presumably this middle-aged man's wife arrived and got most upset at Flockhart's presence. And as a result of this, Flockhart was made to leave immediately. Now, it is interesting that locals are willing to help, but there's also clear fear of reprisals, which limited how much they were willing to help. And it's also interesting, the difference of opinion and willingness based upon individuals. It wasn't just blanket fear. Some were willing to help, some were willing to help up to a point. Then others were just completely unwilling because of fear, basically. Absolutely. Not not unreasonably. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So having been directed towards a wood a few kilometres further on, he headed in that direction, bumping into a number of woodcutters along the way who he managed to fob off with a casual how Hitler and their general direction. This time when he when they asked where he was going he said he was on his way to Reisen, a village which was in the direction he knew he was going. Having cleared the forest he found himself back in heavily cultivated fields of which there were plenty of workers around. Nonetheless having arrived around about 200 yards away from Reisen itself a farmer wearing the Nazi party badge approached them and asked where he was going. And it turned out that this farmer with the Nazi party badge on was a Volksdeutsche who were Germans who had moved into land. shall we oh, call it, Yes. to take over land for the greater good of the German Reich. I understand. Understandably and not surprisingly, this farmer was instantly suspicious of him and asked him for his Ausweis. He looked at the Ausweis and, seeing that he was supposed to be Polish, spoke to Flockhart in Polish. Ah... Oh. No, yes. Oh dear. (laughs) Yes, indeed. It's not the first time we've seen prisoners of war being caught out by not speaking the language they were supposed to be speaking. Yes. Or equally, in the case of David James, in one of his escape attempts, he chose to be Bulgarian on the assumption that no one else would speak Bulgarian in Germany, and therefore the likelihood of him being required to actually speak Bulgarian was so slim that it reduced his risk of being caught. Yeah. Another episode well worth going back and listening to. absolutely yeah so by this stage the farmer's suspicions were highly raised and he said that there was something funny about Flockhart and that he was going to collect the police Flockhart had no opportunity to break away because of a large number of people in the fields who presumably were working under this farmer's direction but also because he states I was lame and suffering from thirst Furthermore, the farmer had kept his ice vice and sent for the police, who duly arrived and asked Flockhart for the details which were contained on his ice vice. Now, while he answered these questions without difficulty, he was still told that he was to consider himself under arrest. The absolute kicker was, once the policeman had handed his gun to the farmer, he then searched them and found a tin of Horlick's tablets.
1: Ah, not commonly carried by Polish people. No,
0: not not traditionally, no. Now, at first, he actually thought it was a tin of explosives and suspected him of being a saboteur. Oh, well, okay. But he said that there were tablets to eat, and it was at that point that the policeman noticed that the writing on the box was in English. Yeah. So, realising that the game was up, Flockhart declared that he was a British prisoner of war. And, to be fair, the policeman's attitude changed completely at this, and he was actually quite sympathetic, even to the point of giving Flockhart his bicycle to ride. No, I know, I know. Instantly, (laughs) my suspicions were raised as well that we may be seeing yet another stolen bike escape. Oh, wonderful.
1: Oh, please.
0: (laughs) Sadly, upon being given the bicycle, he was told not to try and escape because the policeman was a good shot.
1: That's a deterrent, yeah.
0: Yeah, not something I would probably be willing to risk finding out. Yes. Now, he may have been bluffing again, but it just didn't seem worth the risk, I would suspect. Hmm. So while he was still in the hands of the police he was treated relatively well he was allowed to have a wash and a shave which I imagine after a couple of days on the road he was pretty keen to do he was even given three bottles of beer to drink and was even taken for lunch in the cafe in the town However, at five o'clock that evening he was accompanied by the policeman to the Gestapo headquarters in a large private house Always a good sign There, he was taken into a room where he was confronted by what he describes as the film conception of a Gestapo agent, a pale middle-aged man with cropped hair and glasses, which is uh, very rapidly going downhill for Flockhart at this stage. Now, the Gestapo officer looked at him for several minutes and then gave an order to which he was then, upon that order, taken to the local civilian prison in the castle at Lissa. There, he was handed over to the SS, So it's not really getting much better. it's not going well. This is a classic example of out of the frying pan and into the fire. Mm -hmm. So there he was thoroughly searched again and taken to a cell where he was given a very small meal and all his clothing was taken away. The following morning, his clothes were returned. He was given some bread and some tea. He was then put into a private car with two civilians, one of whom was the person I'd first seen at the Gestapo headquarters. Now, this is hardly the first time we've seen a scenario like this. Hmm. And any sensible person would have alarm bells ringing in their head at this stage. So, Flockhart, keeping his wits about him, was watching the signpost and he noticed that he was going to Poznan, what is now Poznan in Poland. And there he was taken into a room with several SS men and a female interpreter. However, the room was occupied with two Russians being interrogated, so he was taken downstairs to the cells. Again, his possessions were taken away, and one of the SS men began to speak to him in German. So having had all his possessions removed, he was taken to a cell which was crowded with civilians. He then stated to the official that he would prefer to be in a cell by himself as he was a serviceman. However, he was forced to go in with the civilians themselves. That afternoon, some of the civilians were taken for questioning and then brought back looking very nervous and shaken. One seemed to be in great pain with both of his thumbs badly swollen and blue and he seemed to be in pain with his back being unable to lie on it. Some of the others helped him off with his jacket and I saw that his shirt was cut to ribbons and that there were large scars on his back the polls seem to be fairly fatalistic about this treatment nonetheless it does give a pretty good indication of the sort of treatment he might reasonably be expecting to receive mm-hmm. That evening, however, at about 6 o'clock in the evening, they all filed out into the passage and made to face the wall. Names were called out and the poles were made to run to the office to collect their belongings. When my name was called, I walked to the office and I was told to return to my place in line after I got my belongings. A few minutes later, names were called out again and we were marched upstairs into the courtyard between a file of SS guards with submachine guns. We were put into a flat canvas-covered truck, and then 60 or 70 of us were taken in that truck, with guards on the back. We were then taken through Posen to a suburb and stopped at a fort. Now, he managed to catch the name of this fort, which is Fort Colom, and they were then taken into the fort and made to stand in the passage with their faces towards the wall. Again, he insisted that he was a British prisoner of war and must be treated as such, and that he objected to being placed with Polish civilians, and that it was his right to have a cell to himself. Now, the Germans did consult with someone on the telephone. He was then taken downstairs to the best accommodation they could offer, which was with
1: 16 German civilians. So, even amongst prisoners, there is a hierarchy here. (laughs) Yes. I wonder how the German uh, civilians took to having an IFNCO with them. Indeed.
0: Indeed. Now, he was given bread, butter, jam and ersatz coffee and he started chatting away to some of them. And actually, it was quite interesting because although they were German civilians, they were there because they were involved in sabotage. Typically, it's not uncommon to come across Poles or French or Dutch who were involved in sabotage, but it's not that common to come across German civilians who were involved in sabotage. I'm not saying there weren't Germans who were anti-Nazi, there absolutely were. I mean, the the White Rose organisation with Sophie Scholl leaps to mind. There were absolutely anti-Nazis within Germany at this time, but it's not that common to come across German saboteurs
1: No, and particularly not ones in prison because one would have thought they're summarily shot. (laughs) Yes, yes without much need for prison or courts Mm -hmm. So
0: after two days in this cell with the German civilians he was then returned to the Gestapo headquarters and put back into the same cell he'd been in previously. He was then taken upstairs after a couple of hours for interrogation Now they first asked for his name and he said that it was Flockhart, however they told him that this was a lie and that his name was Wilkie. Now I have actually previously mentioned Wilkie because Sergeant Wilkie was one of those who covered for him ah, in yes. parades Yes, knowing that this was a risk to both himself and Wilkie he said that he'd never heard of anyone called by that name except Wendell Wilkie who I think was a presidential candidate in America oh really okay so having come up with quite a sarcastic answer they didn't much like it which the Gestapo were not traditionally known for their sense of humour and they threatened to strike him they continued to accuse him of lying but eventually let this point drop They then asked many questions about the names of my parents, my birthplace, my profession. some of the questions I answered truthfully and others untruthfully. They accepted all of this and then said, your name is Wilkie and you've killed a policeman for which you are to be shot. Now having maintained that his name was actually Flockhart and that he had not killed anyone, they should phone his camp and someone could be sent from the German staff to identify him. Nonetheless, they became threatening again and said that as Flockhart was in their hands, no one knew anything about him. They said that they didn't believe his story about escaping or anything I'd told them and that he was in a very dangerous position, which to be absolutely honest, he's in the hands of the Gestapo. I'm not hugely disbelieving them on this one. I think he is in a very dangerous position and an extremely high risk of threat to his life at this stage. They therefore wanted the names of those who had helped him to escape and again threatened me when he said that he had jumped over the wire. They also wanted to know how he'd become a prisoner, so he said that he'd been shot down on a bombing raid and that he'd been taken prisoner after being shot down. It was at this stage that the SS guard who'd been acting as an interpreter struck his face and accused him of being a terror flieger who'd come to bomb their women and children. Now of course by this stage we're talking about mid 1943. Mm -hmm. The bombing campaign was in full flow. Absolutely. And German civilian attitudes towards the RAF, in particular bombers, was far from positive and they were effectively considered terrorists that were there to murder their civilians. The irony of the blitz that had gone before it was unsurprisingly lost on them as I said the SS and the Gestapo were not famed for their sense of humour mm-hmm. or indeed their sense of irony nonetheless someone was sent from the camp to identify him and did positively confirm his identity he was therefore escorted back to the camp by railway and then upon arriving back in Stalag 3 he was interrogated and sentenced to 14 days in the cell with bread and water so having been recaptured and sent back to Stalag 3 he was then sent on to another camp, Staluf six at Heidekrug, that we have definitely come across Heidekrug before. We, we have here. Yeah. In the Escape of Gewelber. Mm-hmm. So he arrived in Heidekrug at the end of June nineteen forty three. And it would be eight months later in February 1944 that he was to make his escape attempt. Now, Heidekrug is now in Shalute in Lithuania, mm-hmm. fairly close to the border there. So he made his escape from Stahl 6 alone by himself this time, and he left on the morning of the 18th of February 1944. So the previous day, he had managed to make his way into another part of the compound, which was only partly occupied and unfinished at this stage. And early in the morning he left for the wash barracks in this compound, dressed in a green tweed jacket, some riding breeches made from Italian pantaloons, some boots and a soft hat with an RAF officer's Macintosh covering him. He was carrying a canvas briefcase and in his hand was a rolled up plan of the compound and immediate surroundings of the camp, which had been made for him by one of the camp architects. He'd had his hair cut and shaved off his moustache so that he looked more like a German and less like himself. So he basically wanted to try and look like someone who was inspecting this half-finished compound. Yeah. So he walked to the warning wire, indicated to the guard that he was going to the unfinished wash barracks and started inspecting the wash barracks outside and taking some notes on the plan that he had. He then went inside for a few moments. Coming out again, he walked slowly over to the gate, presented his pass, which was a forgery and that was accepted by the guard. Now this pass basically stated that he was one of the architects working on the compound and so he walked through the gate without being questioned. He then proceeded to the camp sewage system which was under construction at this precise moment and was located close to the river about 200 metres away from the camp. He was still within full view of the watchtowers but he then spent about 10 minutes at the sewage works examining the excavations on which there was no one working and pretending to take notes and pace distances. So again he's playing it very cool, cool. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, he's hanging around he's not rushing off, he's assimilating himself into the surrounding area so that within a couple of minutes he's just being ignored basically He's just been accepted as someone who's working there and eventually just been overlooked completely by the guards. He's now outside the immediate vicinity of the camp as well. So having gone through this, what can only be described as charade, he then walked back towards the camp, diagonally towards one corner, and then went around the outside wire, which brought him to a road which led to the main administrative buildings. However, before reaching them, he turned off onto another dirt track which took him into a wood, which then brought him to the main road which led to Hyde itself. Now, before leaving the sewage system, he had put his plans into the briefcase, which also contained clothing, toilet gear and sandwiches for his actual journey. And he was also fully loaded with Ford's passes. So, having got out of the camp, he doesn't give a great deal of detail as to precisely how he got to Danzig from Heidekrug. However, I understand you've managed to find a bit more information on what happened from there on in.
1: Yes, because he doesn't give anything away, really, in his reports. But this is quite notable as being interesting with Mm -hmm. regards to the sharing of information. So, shortly before Flockhart made his escape, a Sergeant George Grimson had walked out of the camp disguised as a German guard back in the middle of January 1944, Mm -hmm. complete with a dummy rifle. Uh, he contacted the local Polish resistance and made arrangements to assist subsequent escapees sending coded letters back to Stavagliff 6 with the details. Now, it seems that one of these letters made it, and that's what prompted Flockhart to make his escape on the 18th of February. Now, the information that came up from this was that once he had left the camp, he watched to the railway station at Heidekrug and took a series of trains to northern Poland before walking to the home of the local resistance leader which is where Grimson was staying he then stayed there for a couple of days and then Flockhart and Grimson took separate trains to Danzig and after f- several false starts Flockhart finally managed to board the Swedish ship on the 25th of February and arriving in Stockholm two days later so he then stayed on a little bit more and left for Lucas, as you say on the on the 10th of March 1944 so that is quite an interesting way of providing information but, mm. but sadly we don't have a huge amount more on Flockhart, really. He was awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal for his distinguished effort in escaping from enemy-held territory. And that DCM was the second highest award for gallantry in action after the Victoria Cross. It was awarded to all ranks below commissioned officers. Okay. He was promoted to a flight lieutenant on the 1st of September 1945, and then was appointed as assistant to the Provost Marshal with effect from 30th of April 1947. He retired from the Royal Air Force as a squadron leader on the 12th of April 1961, and he passed away on the 15th of March 1988, a month before his 76th birthday in Bournemouth in Dorset. But that's all I managed to find post-war that's still not bad given his more rank than, yes it's more than we normally have well he ended up as a squadron leader as his last rank mm-hmm. but yes obviously as far as his escape goes as a non-commissioned officer it's quite rare that we have so much information mm-hmm. on his activities well thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed that if you'd like to subscribe we're on apple itunes google podcast or indeed any of your favorite podcast platforms
0: or you can find us on twitter and facebook by searching At F-Y-T-W-I-O.
1: Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.